We used to hang out at an after-hours place in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And it's interesting because Nicky Scarfo and his people were there. And so you would think I would be with them because I'm supposed to be part of the Bruno family. But I stayed with the Sicilians. I thought out of respect to them, I was staying with them. <laughs> and they never realized, nobody in the Bruno family knew me, you know? Heroes Behind Headlines with Ralph Pizzullo. Welcome to Heroes Behind Headlines. I'm your host, Ralph Pizzullo. Our guest today is former DEA agent Frank Panessa, here to talk about the critical role he played in the infamous Pizza Connection case. From 1979 to 1984, the Sicilian Mafia imported and distributed $1.6 billion worth of heroin across the Northeast and Midwestern states of America by using seemingly normal pizza parlors as wholesale distributors. The case, dubbed the Pizza Connection by the press, snowballed into a massive multi-agency and multinational effort with key contributions coming from the New York Police Department, the Drug Enforcement Administration, U.S. Customs, and international authorities in Italy, Sicily, Spain, Switzerland, Turkey, Brazil, Canada, Great Britain, Germany, and Mexico. But no one was more important than DEA agent Frank Panessa, who infiltrated the Sicilian mob and gathered important evidence that led to the breakup of the heroin ring and 18 mob convictions. It's my great honor to welcome former DEA agent Frank Panessa as today's Hero Behind the Headlines. I, I grew up uh, in an Italian-American neighborhood. Uh, we lived with my grandparents who were from Italy. Mm -hmm. And so my first five years living with them was total immersion because they didn't speak English. <laughs> and uh, typical, we lived on the first floor, my grandparents lived on the second floor, and my grandfather had a garden, you know, typical with every... Yeah, my grandfather was the same way. <laughs> every, every type of fruit and vegetable that grew in the United States, he had. That's right. Including a, t a cherry tree. Wow. <laughs> Besides wow. peach trees and plums and all that. Yeah. So I I was used to seeing what it was like, you know, typical Italian-American neighborhood. Mm -hmm. My mother was a saint, but yet she played the numbers every day. She played a nickel <laughs> a day or 10 cents a day. Mm -hmm. And she would give her 10 cents to a guy. They all had nicknames. Yeah. Uh, the guy she gave the money to, his name was uh, Cherry Nose. And he worked. <laughs> He worked for Tony Baloney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, from there, during the war, my father did real well. He started a construction company. Mm -hmm. One thing that the United States didn't have, they didn't have very many airfields around Washington, D.C. when the war broke out. Mm -hmm. and so my father and his partner 
started a company building airstrips around Washington. Wow. The funny story, they were just starting out and they could only afford one truck. Uh-huh. So what my father did, he put the number 22 on the truck. So if anybody saw Nassau construction, they figure, well, there were 21 other trucks. <laughs> and he did real well. Uh-huh. And, and from there, of course, um, he was able to afford to send uh, me and my brothers to college. Mm-hmm. And uh, I graduated from the University of Georgia. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be a, a, an attorney. Originally, I wanted to be a veterinarian, but there was no way I could get into veterinary school. There were just only 10 of them at that time. Yeah. So at the time in 1967, the New York News, on their first floor, they had a, like a job fair. Uh-huh. And I went there and I saw a sign that said, be a treasury agent. So at the time, Treasury had the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the Secret Service, U.S. Customs, and Alcohol and Tobacco Tax. Yeah, wow. And at that time, you had to take an exam. Mm -hmm. And so I took the exam, and how you placed on the exam, that's how the agencies called you. So let's say, as it turned out, Customs was the first agency to have an opening in 67. Mm -hmm. They called me, and I went to customs for a year. But, of course, the grass always looked greener at uh, some of the other agencies, like the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was offering a higher grade for their aid. Uh So I applied to the uh, Federal Bureau of Narcotics in 1968. But by the time I got there, they had changed the name to the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And it stayed that way until 1973, when President Nixon started the Drug Enforcement Administration under the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. And so, even though I started in Treasury, I ended up, you know, under the Department of Justice as a street agent in New York for a number of years. Uh-huh. And uh, primarily, uh, when I went to BNDD, they put me in the organized crime group. And it seemed like there were more people in organized crime in my group than the people we worked on, but that's another <laughs> story. And so uh, we worked on the Italian Americans in New York mm-hmm. who were supplying all the black violators. And those were the days when you had the infamous Bumpy Johnson and you had the, the, the uh, 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 different. People and, and from there, you got Frank Lucas and Frank Matthews and all them. Yeah. Worked on them. Uh-huh. And that went on for years. I So sort of street street dealers in New York. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, that's the time uh, of Superfly when they had the big right. fur coats and right. Cadillacs. <laughs> you know, and um, it, was, it was a wild time. I and, bet. And they were doing big heroin i mean let's face it yeah uh the heroin problem during that time was very big uh-huh. and uh, so we worked on the italian americans and of course that once we got into knowing who the blacks uh violators were we started working on them mm-hmm. so in the late 70s uh i went to the new york task force well actually in 1970 i went to the task force and it was made up of 
NYPD police, New York State troopers, and DEA agents. Mm-hmm. We had the full gamut of enforcement. We could go anywhere yeah. and, and, and make cases, and it was very successful. From there, I, I was transferred uh, to Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And in Philadelphia, we were going after an individual by the name of Dominic Menino. Mm-hmm. And he owned 20 pizza shops in the Philadelphia area. And that's where we got the name, the Pizza Connection. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And Menina was very hard to get into. I mean, he he had all these, we call them zips. They came from, yeah. from uh, Sicily. Yeah. And they ran the shops. But only did, not only did they run the shop, they distributed the heroin for them. And they did any hits that had to be made. Yeah. So they did uh, not only for the Sicilian Mafia, but for the American Mafia. The American Mafia used to uh, hire them. Yeah. Hits for. They were like the, the, the hard guys, the tough guys. Yeah. The enforcers. So, yeah. So we couldn't get into Menino, but I, we had the opportunity to arrest two wise guys associated with the Brino family. Uh-huh. You know, and so I sat down with them and I says, hey, you know, you're going to go to jail if you don't work, work for us. And so they said, well, we're not going to give you anybody in the Bruno family. And I says, well, what about the Sicilian? Yeah. Oh, they're not Italian. <laughs> we'll do something. In the 1970s, the Sicilian mafia turned from its success in cigarette smuggling ventures to step into the void left by the breakup of the French connection and into the heroin trade. A number of members of the Sicilian Mafia immigrated to the United States and established themselves in restaurants and pizza parlors under the auspices of the American Mafia. Clannish and secretive, the Sicilians operated as a family within a family under the leadership of Gaetano Badalamenti, Morphine base was refined in Sicily after being imported from Turkey and smuggled to New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, and from there distributed through pizza parlors across the country. So the Bruno family was controlling Philadelphia at the time? Oh, yes. Yeah. And and there was a power struggle going on at that time because uh, Angelo Bruno was gone. Mm Mm-hmm. And you had different factions trying to take over the family. And the craziest person was Nicky Scarfo. Heard of him. Yeah, yeah. Anybody that got in his way, they, they ended up dead. In, in the two years, 82 to 84, there were 22 hits around me. Wow. So there were 22 mafia killings yeah. around me to take control of the Bruno family. Yeah. Now, Frank, at that time... You were operating in an undercover role, correct? Well, at the time, uh, we, we arrested these two wise guys. Yeah. So you just really can't get in and say you want to buy heroin. Right. We came up with the story that I was the chief hijacker for the Bruno family. Okay. And the Sicilians at that time, especially Alberto Ficalora, who I got into, mm-hmm. uh, a Bonanno family uh, made guy from Sicily. He had 80 cigarette machines. You know when you used to go into the restaurants and they yeah. had in the vestibule, they'd have the, the cigarette machines? Yeah. 
Yeah, my dad used to send me down to the corner with a couple of quarters to, to get yeah. cigarettes for him. Yeah. So they told Alberto Piccolora that, hey, this guy, Frankie Pagano, just got a shipment of cigarettes. Are you interested in them? So, mm. of course, Piccolora says, yeah, of course. Yeah. So at the time, Piccolora was paying $7.10 a carton, legitimately buying the cigarette. Mm-hmm. We, as the government, went out and paid $7.10 the carton, and I offered them to him for $4 a carton. Oh, wow. Wrote off the $3.10 as an investigative expense. Mm-hmm. So these two wise guys set up a meeting with Ficalora and his people from New York, a guy by the name of uh, uh, Paulo Laporta. Mm-hmm. So they come out, they come down to Philadelphia, and the wise guys set it up where we're having dinner at a mob restaurant. The wise guys sit on each side of me, and the Sicilians sit across the table. And the wise guys make sure I get my drinks. When the food comes out, they serve me first. Mm-hmm. So the Sicilians are looking at this, and they're saying, you know, we know these guys, the wise guys and Bruno family. He must be somebody the way they're, you right. know, treating him. Right. You know, <laughs> they never questioned it after that. Starting in the late 50s, Angelo Bruno, known as the Gentle Don, had ruled organized crime in Philadelphia for two decades. But his reluctance to enter the narcotics trade coupled with his decision to allow New York gangsters to set up shop in Atlantic City, proved to be his undoing. On March 21st, 1980, Angelo Bruno was assassinated by a shotgun blast to the head while sitting in his car in front of his house in South Philadelphia. After a short interim, Nicodemo Little Nicky Scarfo took over. The antithesis of the gentle Don Scarfo was violent, paranoid, and cruel. He also fully embraced the drug trade, which resulted in a dramatic increase in drug violence in Philadelphia, which brought increased federal scrutiny. In those days, when you were, you were working undercover, obviously, uh, did, was there any training in those days, or you just went, no. learned, on, learned on the streets? No. Yeah. It was for looks, and if you have big enough tribunes to go on the street. Yeah, yeah. And that was the only training. I mean, I, wow. I I had to teach myself. I had to teach myself that I had to remember everything I said to these people, Yeah, you know, undercover, because they're going to remember what I told them yesterday, what I told them last week, what I told them last month. Yeah. I mean, when you're sitting for dinner with four mobsters... You you have to kind of know how to how to behave and, oh, and, you and do. yeah yeah you know, I had but that's to, all I, that was all self learned that wasn't like no no I had to I had to go with the situation and that's mm-hmm. what I always did in any undercover situation mm-hmm. I was in mm-hmm. you know I studied it and I prepared prepared myself for it mm-hmm. and so that night went real well yeah I started selling them cigarettes so after a few months. You know, meeting them uh, quite a few times, I, I put on my face. You know, I put on yeah. my, I, I, I say a face of muscle could see, you know, I, 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 you <laughs> yeah. know. Uh, 
it's uh, almost so, like an actor. Actor. Yeah. Prepa- yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And so Piccolora says to me, he called me Cugina, cousin. Yeah. He says, what's wrong? I says, you know, I do other stuff. He says, what do you mean? I says, you know, I do white powder. What are you talking about? You do white powder. He says, we control all the white powder. He says, who are you buying from? So thank God I was buying off a guy in the Genovese family in New York mm-hmm. that we hadn't arrested. So I says, I'm getting it from so-and-so. He says, we sell it to him. <laughs> now on, you get it from us. Mm-hmm. I can't believe this. <laughs> <laughs> Giving you an invitation. Yeah. That's how it starts. Wow. And so now I have to convince DEA and I have to convince everybody yeah. he's somebody. Yeah. So I go to DEA and they says, these guys sound like meatballs. We don't have any information on them. I says, they're the main distributors of heroin in the United States. Yeah. These are the Sicilians. The Sicilians. Yeah. And so I says, I need money. They says, well, we don't know if we can get it. So thank God at the time, Rudy Giuliani was assistant U.S. attorney under Ed Meese. Mm-hmm. And I knew Rudy from the late 60s because he was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. And I used to bring my cases to him. So they had a big sit down with the FBI, DEA, and Rudy. And Rudy says, Frank, what do you need? I says, well, I need a real backdrop. I need to exist under Frank Pagano. Yeah. I says, I need about a million dollars. Because these guys are talking, selling kilos of heroin to me. Yeah. He says, no problem. <laughs> uh, I says, I need a passport in the name of Frank Pagano. Yeah. And at that time, I mean, it, uh, you just think you get real fake passports. Yeah. Says, I'll take care of it. You know? Wow. So they set up where where I was born. Mm -hmm. I tell them I wanted to be born so and so, such and such a city, such and such a date. My father's name was so and so. My mother's name was so and so. Sure as hell, if you were to go to the lodge of that year and that date, you'd see that name in that book. Wow. I don't know how they did. And he arranged all that. He arranged it all. Yeah, fantastic. And so what happens is they set me up in a, um undercover apartment, a penthouse apartment in Philly. Mm-hmm. And in those days, you couldn't build any buildings higher than 18 stories. Hmm. No building could be higher than the statue of William Penn on City Hall in Philadelphia. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. So I had an 18th floor penthouse at 15th and Locust. Wow. And uh, the Sicilians knew I was staying there, you know? Yeah. And you must have had a whole wardrobe and everything. I, I did. You know, I, I I used to say I was Gucci'd out. You know? <laughs> I mean, I couldn't wear my Kmart clothes. Right, right, right. Sure. Did they give you a budget for that? I mean, were you able no, to? Yeah, on my own. That was all on your own. I didn't go for spit. You know, I, I, I had to fight DEA all the way. Like they said, well, what gun are you carrying? I says, I'm carrying a 25 Beretta. Yeah. Well, that's not authorized. I says, well, I'm not authorized to do undercover work then. <laughs> I says, I'm not carrying anything that looks like a police gun. Of course, they give they, you away they, they right away. Yeah. A 25 Beretta. 
they figure, well, that's an assassin's gun, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So I, I carried a twenty-five Beretta with me. When, not all the time, you know, yeah. but when I had to. And you were always wired? Oh, see, that was my choice. Yeah. There were times when, like, I did some cases on some Sicilians, and I knew they were going to have women in the in the nightclub that night. Mm-hmm. And their job was to grab me and see mm-hmm. if I was wearing a wire. Yeah, and yeah. So, thank God I didn't wear a wire, because when I went in, these two girls come over, they start grabbing me and yeah. doing this and doing that, you know? Yeah. So, it was my choice. Yeah. Now, Frank, how did the Sicilians come to dominate the heroin trade in the United States? Okay. It was all controlled by the Bonanno, Sicilian faction of the Bonanno family under Lilo Galente. Uh-huh. He made sure that he got control of all heroin importation into the United States. Wow. So he could control the price. He could turn off the spigot if he wanted the price to go up. Yeah. So the sole distributors of the heroin was the Bonanno Sicilian faction in New York. Uh-huh. And uh, in Philadelphia, I dealt with Alberto Ficalora. Mm-hmm. His sort, he got it from Paolo Laporta, who got it from Sal Catalano in Brooklyn. So anyway, I have the penthouse apartment. But in the, what I used to do is I drive to the penthouse apartment and pull into the garage, go up to the penthouse, and just stay there a little while. And then at that time, they had call forwarding, but it wasn't for you know everybody's consumption. Yeah. So I would put the phone on call forwarding to a phone that I had in my house in Medford, New Jersey. Wow. And we called it the red phone, and the kids knew never to answer it. Only my wife would answer it. Yeah. And so I would put it on call forwarding, go down to the garage, get into a different car, and drive out to Jersey so I could spend some time with my family. Yeah. And one night, the red phone rings, and it's Alberto Ficolora. Uh-oh. He says, we're downstairs, meaning downstairs in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. But right away, I say something to him that everybody, they all understand. I says, I'm with my gumare. I'm with my girlfriend up here. Right, right. I says, why don't you go to this restaurant? And it was uh, a mob restaurant called La Buca. Mm-hmm. I says, I'll meet you there in about half hour, 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, so now I have to find surveillance agents. I'm in Medford, New Jersey. Yeah. So I was able to get one agent. Mm-hmm. And so I go to La Buca and I go there and there's Alberto Ficolora and the heroin suppliers from New York, uh, uh, Paulo Laporta and Franco Fatigado. Mm-hmm. So we get to talk and they said, oh, let's go for a ride. I said, oh boy. Yeah. That's not good. And I get in the car. I'm in the back seat with uh, uh, Alberto Ficolora. And in the front seat, Franco Fatigato is driving, and Paolo Laporta is, is in the passenger side. So we go, we start, they start driving, and I'm looking out the back, and I see we lose the surveillance agent oh, after a few turns. Yeah. Oh, my so God. I'm on my own. Yeah. So we started having a conversation 
And Afada Gato was a real wise ass. And he says, you know, we don't do anything less than kilos. He says, so you'll have to buy a kilo from us. I says, I don't even know who the hell you are. Yeah. I'm not going to buy a kilo from you. Yeah. And so he's getting really, uh, you know, nasty and all that. So Alberto Ficalora wanted the deal to go down. He says, oh, 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 come on. He says, why don't we do the first deal for 85000 See, the kilos were 150000 at that Uh-huh. But you have to understand, if I bought a kilo, if I was a dope dealer, yeah. if I bought a pure kilo for $150,000, after I whacked it and distributed it to my distributors, I could make about a million dollars on it. Wow. You know? Wow. So anyway, we decide, okay, $85,000 for the first buy. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to go back and tell <laughs> DEA I need $85,000. Yeah. But with Rudy Giuliani behind it all, who had faith in me, no problem. Really? Wow. So what happens is we, we arranged a meet at uh, a restaurant across the street from my penthouse apartment on Locust Street. Mm -hmm. I go into the restaurant, and there's Alberto Ficolora and Paolo Laporta sitting at the table. I sit down the, at the table. And they push a birthday present to me, wrapped in birthday paper. Yeah, yeah. I says, oh, here's your birthday present. <laughs> I says, oh, okay, let me bring it up to my apartment. Yeah, yeah. So I leave them. Now, here, they're fronting me, the heroin. Right. They're staying. And they were so sold on who I was. Wow. You know? So you didn't hand them the money right there no, in the restaurant. No, I didn't have yeah. the money with me. So anyway... I go up to the apartment and we test the heroin and it comes back pure. Yeah. And so I get a shopping bag with $85,000 in it. So the, so, so the, they had to test it first before they're going to give you the money, the DEA. I, I, I wouldn't give them the money if it didn't test pure for heroin. Right. So I go back to the restaurant and I have the shopping bag. I says, oh, let's go. Yeah. And so we leave the restaurant and there's surveillance pictures of me carrying the the shopping bag until we get a few a few blocks away from the apartment and I hand them the shopping bag with the $85,000 in it. Mm -hmm. From that day, when they walked away with that $85,000, I was in with them. I was their golden goose in Philadelphia. They never trusted it. You mentioned before that you had a, a, a wife and children. Yeah, I had, uh, I had four kids. My wife and four kids. How did your wife feel about this? She was the superstar. She raised four kids without me because I would disappear for weeks on end. Yeah. You know, and I had the penthouse apartment in Philadelphia. Yeah. And uh, I remember one thing I did was I left in September and I came back in December. You know, they had me doing undercover work all over the place. Yeah. You know, there were times they'd fly me to Montreal to meet with the Catroni family. Uh, I went to the Netherlands to meet with the Turks. Wow. Um, uh, Central America, El Salvador, um, all over the place. Now, the heroin was coming from the from the Midi Middle East? And no, the heroin was coming uh, at that time through Turkey, mm -hmm. through Sicily. Mm -hmm. And it was being, uh, the morphine base was being converted into heroin in the Sicilian labs. Okay. Okay. 
from there, it was smuggled into the United States, and they had a lot of uh, ingenious methods of, of smuggling it in. They smuggled in in tomato cans and tuna <laughs> cans. Yeah. They smuggled it in 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 tile. The the pallets that the tile were on uh-huh. contained heroin in the pallets. Oh wow! In in the wood. In the wood. They hollow out the wood. Yeah. Matter of fact. Um, uh, uh, there was a big seizure in Buffalo, New York. And so I'm in Philadelphia with the Sicilians and I'm saying, hey, I heard this seizure. They says, yeah, that was our stuff. That was one of our people, Ragusa. Uh-huh. But he got away. And they said, if you ever have any problem, go to the Dominican Republic. And that's where he went. Uh-huh. He says, we control the Dominican Republic. Wow. We control the casinos. And we do a lot of our more money laundering through the casinos in the Dominican Republic. Wow. So over the months, they saw that I had uh, an import-export company. And what we did was I had Prima Import-Export, Trevos, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So when they come down from New York, we would rent the truck. And we had a stickum on the side of the truck that we put on the side of the truck. <laughs> and it said, Prima Import Export, Trevos, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and when they pulled into the parking lot, they saw my truck, or one of my trucks. <laughs> Another thing we did, we had a stamp made up, imported by Prima Import Export, Trevos, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And we bought some cartons of wine, and we stamped the top of the cartons with imported by Prima Import Export. Mm. And we knew when they opened the cartons of wine, They'd see that on the top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't import it. (laughs) So we interested them in using my company in Germany, Prima Import. So you were were importing things from Germany. Well, we came up with that when they said, yeah, they were interested in it. We didn't know anybody. So we called the BKA, the the most professional German police force there is. Mm Mm-hmm. And we says, this is the situation we have. We have these Sicilians that want to bring the heroin through Italy into Germany and use my company to smuggle it into the United States. Uh-huh. And I told them we were, we were smuggling in a lot of cork products. Mm-hmm. So the Germans said, okay, we'll take care of everything. So now I fly over to Frankfurt with one of the Sicilians. Yeah. And this big German meets us at the airport and we go outside and there's this big Mercedes Benz. And he says to the Sicilian, see what Frank bought me? <laughs> I never met the guy before. <laughs> we go, we drive to Frankfurt. Yeah. And we pull up to this building and there's Prima Import Export outside the building. We go into the building. And there's this like 20-something-year-old blonde secretary mm-hmm. who says, oh, Mr. Frank, so good to see you. Here are the cookies I made for you. Wow. Wow. They're good. I can't believe these people. <laughs> so of course, the place was wired for sound. and Sure. So you, this is the first time you've ever been to, to your office. First time. Yeah. First time. And you've got Sicilians with you. Yeah. And it just goes smooth as could be. They were sold on it. Yeah, I bet. You know, another another interesting thing. We used to hang out at an after-hours place 
in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because Nicky Scarfo and his people were there. Mm -hmm. And so you would think I would be with them because I'm supposed to be part of the Bruno family. Right. But I stayed with the Sicilians. Yeah. I thought out of respect to them, I was staying with them. <laughs> and I never realized nobody in the Bruno family knew me. You know? <laughs> it never happened. That's the funny. Things were happy. I was staying with them. And the Bruno family thought I was one of the Sicilians. Yeah. Gosh. You know? So I, I was lucky in that regard, you know, uh, was there ever a moment where where they you think they suspected you or they they had a question or something slipped? Never, 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 never. never. Wow. They were so surprised when they were arrested. Yeah, to find out that I was an agent. Wow, you know. But of course, uh, the government wanted to arrest them all. They said we had an airtight case in all of them, and. Uh, Let's take it all down. Arrest all of them in Brooklyn and all of them in Philadelphia. Yeah. So by that time, Rudy Giuliani was the assistant, was the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. Yeah. So he got the New York faction of it. And Ed Dennis, who was the U.S. attorney in Philadelphia, got the Philadelphia end of it. How, how, how long had you been operating undercover? By that time, I, I, I was undercovering about Oh, almost a year. Yeah, wow. And every day when I was meeting with them, I was finding out about murders. Yeah. I remember we went to Italy. Mm -hmm. And we were supposed to meet the Sicilians there to do a deal, you know, to bring the heroin up to Germany. Yeah. And so a day passes and the Sicilians don't show up. Hmm. And and so I call and I said, where are you? They said, come back. We can't do anything because we have to kill a judge. Wow. And killed Judge Canizzi at that time. Oh, wow. That was a big, 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 big murder. Yeah. Yeah. So they said, um, uh, you know, nothing's moving. So come back. Yeah. So yeah. it was things like that, that I was finding out, you know, almost on a daily basis. I mean, I existed in their life. Uh, even sold them. Their source of supply was uh, Cesare Bonaventure who was one of the guys that set up Galente's murder. Oh, yeah. Cesare uh, uh, Bonaventure and his sidekick, Baldo Amato, were bodyguards to uh, Lilo Galente. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Lilo Galente was at the restaurant in Brooklyn, he was murdered there. Yeah. And, and they found, you know, uh, bullets from... The two assassins, they came in and they found additional bullets in them, which was probably from, what do you call it, Cesare Bonaventure and his side. Yeah. So because they set up Milo Galente, Cesare Bonaventure was giving the distribution rights of all the Sicilian heroin uh -huh. coming into the United States. Yeah. So there were occasions when they were cutting the heroin with, uh, with Manite. Uh -huh. get with quinine yeah and so we offered to sell them quinine uh-huh you know <laughs> and there was one occasion where we went up to brooklyn and gave them a shipment of quinine which they brought right to um cesare bonaventure yeah another thing that we did was one day now the sicilians were always fronting me the heroin wow 
I bought over a million dollars worth of heroin from them. Wow. Now, once did I have to come up with the money? Yeah. They would front me a kilo of heroin. And when I, when I, you know, after so many weeks, I'd say, okay, I got the money to pay you. Yeah. So how, how was that working, Frank? How, the money was coming from the federal government? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Coming from the super fund. They came up with over a million dollars. Wow. Because they saw the significance of it. They saw these people yeah. this cell that I was working with yeah. was bringing in a million dollars a day Man. on heroin sales. Wow. They were bringing in over $365 million a year. Wow. And we know for a fact because all the proceeds would go to an apartment in Brooklyn mm -hmm. where a guy uh, would collect the money. Mm -hmm. His name was Rosario Dispenza. Mm -hmm. And he would take a million dollars at a time and bring it to a brokerage house. And the guy in the brokerage house knew that a hundred thousand out of the million was for him, and he would launder the nine hundred thousand. He didn't <laughs> have the ten thousand dollar laws in those days. Yeah, yeah. So he would invest the nine hundred thousand in, let's say, Mrs. Fletcher's storm door company. It didn't matter. Yeah, yeah. A month later, he would sell it. Yeah. If it made money, fine. If it lost money, no problem. Yeah. Now you had nine hundred thousand dollars that was clean. In a check. Yeah. That you could send to the Caribbean, you could send wherever you wanted to send. Right. So that went on for uh, a, a long time. Suaven Debonair, Cesare Bonventre, was also a ruthless and dangerous criminal, responsible for as many as 20 mob slayings. As a capo regime and made man, he was an influential member of the Bonanno crime family, one of the five families of New York City. Hailing from Sicily, Cesare Bonventre arrived in America during the 1960s and became a bodyguard to then Bonanno family boss, Carmine Galente. In order to gain further power, he betrayed Galente, and at the age of 28, Bonventre became the youngest capo in Bonanno family history, and soon became involved in the importation and drug trafficking of heroin from Sicily into New York pizza parlors. Because of Bonventre's Sicilian pedigree, increasing wealth, and fearsome reputation, he posed an increasing threat to the leaders of the Bonanno family. In April 1984, Bonventre was called to a meeting in Wallington, New Jersey, on the way there, he was shot in the head twice, then hacked to pieces and dumped into three 55-gallon glue drums, which were then moved to the fourth-floor offices of a trading company in Garfield, New Jersey. And Frank, you said they were selling, the, they were distributing the heroin through this network of pizza parlors. Yes, they were. And they were all, these pizza parlors were in cities all over the U.S.? All over the U.S. Wow. And there were actually, by that time, they, uh, the person that took over was uh, Gaetano Badalamente. Mm -hmm. And he was calling the shots from South America. Mm -hmm. And he had a nephew in Illinois by the name of Alfano, Pietro Alfano. 
and he had a pizza shop, and he was distributing heroin through that pizza shop. Where where was his shop? Where was where was Alfaro's shop? I can't remember where in Illinois it was. Somewhere uh, in Illinois. Yeah, I was in Illinois. And all these pizza shops were run by Sicilians. All by Sicilians. Wow. All run by Sicilians. Wow. They didn't even trust. They didn't trust the American mobsters. Oh, they. You know, people have to understand. There were two mafias: yeah. the Sicilian mafia and the American mafia. Yeah, I infiltrated the Sicilian mafia. Yeah, guys like uh, Donnie Brasco, Joe Pistone infiltrated the American mafia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They used one another for their own gains. You know, to right. make money. Right. There wasn't any love between them. No, it sounds like they didn't even really trust one another that no. much. No, they didn't. Yeah, and they hated Leo Galante. Yeah. Why they had no problem with setting him up to be murdered? Uh huh. You know, and Lilo Galante had been head of the Bonanno family. Is that correct? He was. Yes, he took over control of the Bonanno family, and he thought he was running heroin. He thought he was the heroin king of the U.S. He was. Yeah, he was he controlled all the heroin? But he was greedy. Yeah. Uh, the same with when Cesare Bonaventure took over, he became greedy. Yeah. I got a I got a shipment of heroin from the Sicilians, and it tested thirty five percent pure. Wow! So I complained. Yeah. Uh, to Calora and to uh, Laporta, I says, "What are you doing to me?" Yeah. You gave me shit stuff. Yeah. They says, "Oh, we we have to take what we get from the boss," meaning uh, uh, Cesare Bonaventure. Yeah. That was his downfall. He became greedy, and they killed him. Yeah. Ah. Uh, they chopped him up into two fifty-five gallon drums. Uh, they were brutal. I'll tell you. We're at a social club in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and Alberto Ficolora says to me, "You see those two guys over there?" And he he was talking about the Salino brothers, uh, who were made Bonanno family members. Mm-hmm. You know. They show no respect, and, and they have to pay for their, you know, their wrongdoing. Yeah. A month later, month and a half later, both of them were murdered. Yeah. I mean, they, these people were brutal. Yeah. They really were. And so much of it is, in, it's interesting, so much of it was manners, right? Yeah. Respect, how you dressed, how you addressed somebody. Respect. And that's, that's what I felt. Yeah. You know? Wherever I went, like we we went to a restaurant uh, on 33rd Street, Manhattan, called Roma Nova. Really good restaurant. Uh And so the maitre d' comes over to me, you know, and says, oh, Mr. Pagano, it's such a pleasure to see you. Because the Sicilians had told him I was somebody in the Bruno family. Yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, I got wine from your mother's hometown. I I told him that. You know, my mother was from Matera, yeah. which my family was from Matera. Yeah. And so he says, oh, I got the wine for you. The wine was like, at that time, $40 a bottle, and it tastes like piss. But <laughs> what can you do? Right. So then uh, Paolo Laporta says to me, see, I told him I had a daughter. One, I have one daughter who was 19 years old, uh-huh. but I was divorced from my wife. And she wouldn't let me see my daughter. Ah. But this, if they ever ask, bring your daughter around. Yeah. 
I already had it laid out that my wife was really nasty. Right. So they said, we want to introduce it to the chef here. He's 23 years old <laughs> and he's not in our business. Yeah. He's a tremendous chef. So they bring out this young chef. Oh, Mr. Pagano. So it's a pleasure to meet you. Would you like to try uh, one of my pastas? I says, well, how many pastas do you have? He says, well, I have seven different ones. I says, give me a taste of each. Yeah. <laughs> so he brings out a taste of pasta. But that's the thing I felt. I felt yeah. respect. I remember going to a discotheque. Yeah. Yeah. They would put us at a special table. And 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 the waiter would come over, you know, and say, "What can I get you in all this?" And so, uh, I was looking at the menu, and on the menu was gnocchi. Yeah, you know, pasta. Yeah. And says, "Oh, I want some gnocchi." He says, "Oh, I'm so sorry, we're out of it." He says, "But my wife made some. Do you want me to go home <laughs> and get some for you?" I said, "No, that's okay." Yeah. This is how it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was gentlemanly in, in in its own strange way. Yeah. So Frank, uh, let's talk about when the whole kind of pizza connection, well, when they decided to to, to to roll it all up, right? Yeah. Did you want it to continue? It sounded like it was going. You you were getting more and more it, it information going, all the time. It, yeah. It was going beautifully. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact. Just before that, I went to um, Piccolo's Pizza Shop, and he says, oh, come on downstairs. Mm-hmm. So we go downstairs, and there's 30 kilos of cocaine on the table. Wow. He says, oh, take a kilo. I says, no, I don't get into that stuff. Yeah. He says, well, we control all the cocaine, too. Wow. I, I, you know, things like that. Matter of fact, a six-year-old, uh, Paolo uh, Laporta's six-year-old son was down in the basement with us. Mm-hmm. So I said in in, uh, in slang, I says I feel scumbari. I I feel itchy. Yeah. Because with the kid here. Yeah. He says to the little <laughs> six year old, he says, "What do you see?" And this little mafioso in training says, "I see nothing." <laughs> oh my god. The training already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't I didn't want it to end. Yeah, yeah. And, and so they said, well, we want you to stiff them. Uh, you owe them $150,000. Yeah. Because they were fronting me, the heroin. Yeah. Don't pay them. I says, what are you, out of your mind? Yeah, you get killed. I says, These, this is a gentleman agreement. Yeah. I says, if I don't pay them, they're going to come after me. Yeah. I says, well, we got them in the wiretap. We want to see what they're going to do. Well, sure as hell, they put a contract out on me. Sure, sure. And they really try to get me. I used to hang out at a, at a nightclub in uh, New Jersey called Sinelli's. Mm-hmm. And there were times where you'd hear telephone call for Frank Pagano, telephone call for Frank Pagano. And they'd have some wise guy, you know, some Sicilians just waiting, waiting by the phone booth. Yeah, sure. The wacky. And then uh, at one time, they went to the wise guys that introduced me to, to, to them. Yeah. And uh, they said, we want, it, we want to see Frank. So they said, well, we know he's going to be at a restaurant in Philly on such and such a day. Yeah. Sure as hell, there's a van waiting outside of the restaurant. Jeez. To grab me. Yeah. Well, wh- why did the, de- 
Why did they do that? Why, why did they? Well, uh, you know, the government in their infinite wisdom yeah. you know, don't understand what it's like to be on the street yeah. and the situation you're in as an undercover agent. Yeah. So now it comes time to arrest them. And they, they said, call Paulo up. Yeah. So I called Paulo up and I says, Paulo, I want to pay you the 150 Yeah. Says no, that's okay. It's already gone to the collection agency. In other <laughs> words, the contract was out on. Them. Yeah, it's too late. Yeah. So, Frank, what year is this now? This is eighty-three. Eighty-three. Okay. Yeah, I think at nineteen eighty-three, eighty-four. Okay. Uh, and um, so now they arrest them. Yeah. And they find out I'm an undercover agent. Wow. So normally. You don't see them until you go to trial. Right, 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 right. But we get a call from the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they said their attorney asked if the Sicilian could see you. He wants to talk to you. Yeah. So I figured, hey, I don't have any problem with him, but I figured he's going to threaten me. Yeah. So what we do is we take pictures of his house, Yeah. his wife, his kids, his parents, yeah. his girlfriend. And I have them with me. Yeah. I go to see the Sicilian. And it's, I figure if you're going to threaten me, I'm going to say, hey, there's 12 copies of this. Yeah. 12 agents that have it. If I get hit by a bus, your family's dead. Yeah. But that never happened. Yeah. And he says, Frank, you know, ours was a, a brotherly relationship. Yeah. He says, what do you recommend we do? I said, I, I can't give you a recommendation. <laughs> but you have to understand that you did 12 hand-to-hand -hand buys with me. In other words, you personally handed me 12 packages of heroin. Yeah. So you can't use entrapment yeah. as a defense. Right. I says, I, I don't know what to say. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll probably go to trial. So now it goes to trial, and they bring down one of the best attorneys I've ever been up against, a guy by the name of Jerry Leftcourt out of New York. Mm -hmm. And they pay him $30,000 just to cross-examine me. You know, so he says, Agent Panessa, isn't it true that you had a brotherly relationship with my clients? I says, Counselor, I paid them a million dollars for heroin. I want to consider that a brotherly relationship. <laughs> I said yeah. it was more like a, a business relationship. Of course, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. How many people were arrested altogether? There down like, there, there were uh, seven. Seven, and then there were people arrested and they, uh, and, in and New York got, and other places oh, as well. Oh, they got quite a few in New York. Yeah. And, and Gaetano Badalamente's nephew, Alfano, they brought him to New York as part of the New York conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were tried up in New York. Now, the people that I dealt with, I mean, they got 30 years in jail. Wow. I mean, they appealed it, and I think they got out after like 15 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. And did you ever have any fear that these guys would, once they got out of jail, they'd come after you or they'd send people after you? Because now, you're, now your name has been revealed in, in trial, your real oh, name. Sure. No, I mean, I, I testified at the trial. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, but no, I never felt that way. I mean, I, I met with the Sicilians 
And he says, Frank, you know, ours was a brotherly relationship. But the people that introduced you to, to us have to be held accountable. Uh-huh. So we have to put them in the witness protection program. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I never I never looked over my shoulder after that. Like, they sent me and uh, Joe Pistone uh, different places to, yeah. uh, to publicize uh, a, um, a BBC special that they were doing. Mm-hmm. And and Joe always felt there was always a contract out on him. Yeah, I think to this day he still feels that way. Because I saw Joe um, about six months ago, and I still feel he feels that way. Yeah, it's a mindset. A lot of it. Yeah, me. Yeah. I I I don't look over my shoulder. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. And how did your wife feel about all this? She must have been. Well, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. My wife is the hero. Of this whole story. Yeah. She raised four kids without me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And she had to put up with all my bull. Yeah. And all that. But my kids were affected by it. Uh huh. We sat down when they were much older. Yeah. And one one of them said, I was always afraid that you were going to be killed in an, or- in an airplane accident because you were always on a plane. Yeah. Another one said, I was always afraid that we'd be sitting in the living room and somebody would pass with a machine gun and shoot into the uh, living room. And then, of course, one said, you were never there when I needed you. Yeah. You know, put me on a guilt trip. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? That's rough. But hey. Yeah. They had a good life. Yeah. Uh, I, I did very well. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I, I went up the scale in DEA. Yeah. Where where I uh, uh, I retired in in senior management mm-hmm. you know, with a good pension, mm-hmm. so it was well worth it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't change it for anything. Yeah, what an experience! You know, it, it was unbelievable. Yeah, uh, you know, to sit down at a restaurant and have, eat lunch and pay two thousand dollars for lunch, and then you had to go home and eat hot dogs with your kids. <laughs> yeah and i bet a lot of these guys were they probably were uh entertaining you know they were probably fun to be around yeah you know as i say they were family people yeah they spoke about their kids yeah they 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 spoke about different things yeah It, it didn't bother them with what they were doing and Frank, when you dealt with the Sicilians, were you were you speaking in English or or did you speak Sicilian, Sicilian dialect? No, in English. Yeah, always in that English. That was done for a reason. Yeah. I figured if if they figured that I didn't speak Italian or Sicilian, they would say things to one another. Yeah. So I had a girlfriend who was a, a female undercover agent. Yeah. Who spoke Sicilian. She was first generation Sicilian, so she spoke fluent Sicilian. Oh wow! But she didn't let on. Yeah, she could listen to anything they were saying, <laughs> and she knew everything they were saying. Yeah, yeah. Matter of fact, we used the same girl. We had so many wiretaps on them that she was one of the girls we used to, uh, you know, to write up a transcript of wiretaps. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, we covered all bases. We tried to cover all bases. Yeah. No, to do something like that, it's got to be seamless. You have to. Yeah. Yeah, because you never know when you're going to be compromised. Yeah. And uh, as I say, with the Sicilians, I felt comfortable. With the Colombians, you know, uh, like when I was in El Salvador, mm-hmm. anybody came up to me and said, you know, are you American? I'd start speaking Italian. I'd say, no, I'm Italian. Yeah. You know, I didn't want people to know yeah. who I was. Yeah. Well, what a life, Frank. What a life. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> Frank's career in the Drug Enforcement Administration spanned 28 years and included numerous undercover roles in the United States, Europe, Asia, and Central America. In 1985, he testified before the President's Commission on Organized Crime, established by President Reagan, to investigate the rise of heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine importation into the United States. After infiltrating the Sicilian Mafia in the Pizza Connection case, he served in the U.S. Embassy in Rome as the government's chief liaison to Italian police agencies from 1988 to 1990. During that time, he also coordinated international enforcement, intelligence, and training operations throughout the Mediterranean Basin. And, of course, I went on to, to do undercover work uh, with the Colombians, with the Turks, with the black Muslims. I went up to Canada to deal with the Catroni family. Wow. Uh, I dealt with Chinese. Jeez. Um, they were introducing you to everybody in this everybody. whole huge network, very international network. Yeah. I mean, at that time, you know, being a black Muslim was big, so... These, these people who were just getting into being black Muslims, yeah. they thought I was a Turk yeah. and, and I was a Muslim. So I would beat them and I'd say, you know, there's only one Allah and Muhammad is his prophet and all that. And they, yeah. you know, they almost have orgasms when I say that. <laughs> you know? And I had to remember not to tell them I like pork. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What? Especially when we went out to eat. Yeah, absolutely. So I did things like that. You, know? you had different you had to maintain different identities too no it was always it was always frankie pagano okay and frankie pizza okay the way i got the name frankie uh, pizza there was a young agent buying off uh people in one of the families in new york mm-hmm. a guy by the name of alphonse Cafaro. Mm-hmm. and so he wanted to do a big deal and so he says, well, I have to bring my uncle into it. So Kafaro says to him, who's your uncle? So he says, what are you writing a book? <laughs> says, I want to know who your uncle is. Yeah. Go off the top of your head. He says, haven't you ever heard of Frankie Pizza? <laughs> and so Kafaro didn't want to look like a, a jadrul. Yeah. He says, oh, yeah, I know who he is. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how I got the name Frankie Pizza. Jeez. Jeez. But it was always Frankie Pagano. Yeah. I remember dealing with the Colombians. I had a Learjet. And, of mm. course, a DEA Learjet and two yeah. DEA agents as pilots. Yeah. And I was negotiating with the Colombians. So they knew 
well, they were told that I was a made guy out of Philly. Yeah. I would be flying up to New Jersey and I'd meet the Columbian at Teterboro Airport. Mm-hmm. And at Teterboro Airport, there's a terminal called Millionaire. Mm-hmm. That's where all the private jets come in. Mm-hmm. So we fly up to Teterboro Airport. I meet the Colombian, and I, uh, you know, I call to the pilot. Okay, let's go for a ride. So we had already planned to have wiretaps on three cell phones that a judge gave us the orders in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay, uh-huh. we had a judge who was very. Uh, he, he did. We did well by him. Yeah. So. I says, so I call the pilot. I says, where are we now? He says, oh, we're around Harrisburg. <laughs> I says, oh, why don't we land for lunch? Yeah. <laughs> so we land in Harrisburg. Yeah. And I take out the three cell phones. Yeah. I say the Colombian, they're brand new. Use which one you want. Yeah. And I'm going to go in and get something to eat. Yeah. So I get off the plane, and sure as hell, he picks up one of the phones. And he calls his people in Colombia. Jeez. You know? Crazy. So we did things like that. And and then we made arrangements for me to go to El Salvador. Uh, he wanted me to fly the jet to Colombia uh-huh. to pick up the load. And I says, no, we can't. I'm going to Colombia with my So the Colombians were, were trading cocaine? They were, they were dealing cocaine or heroin as well? Uh, cocaine. I mean, I had deals... Uh, heroin for cocaine yeah. you know after that yeah so anyway uh we make arrangements to go to el salvador yeah and so i go down to el, el salvador but it was it was cases like that i always used pagano yeah i always used frank yeah and a lot of times they say well don't use your first name but it paid off for me mm-hmm. i was with some sicilians at the san Gennaro feast in new york mm-hmm and a cousin, a female cousin I hadn't seen in years, comes running up to me. Frank, how are you? How are you? You know, wow. I grab her. I says, Barbara, I'm undercover. Be cool. Yeah. <laughs> now, if I was using the name Jim. Oh, yeah. A lot of explaining to do. Yeah. Frank, yeah. You know? Yeah. I always use that. Yeah, smart. Always, uh, it was always uh, Frank and always Frank Pagano. Yeah, smart. Uh, matter of fact, um, they sent me out to Detroit to get into the Jackalone family. Mm-hmm. And I used Pagano out there, but I didn't have an informant to get into the Jackalone family. Mm-hmm. We only knew that they hung out in a restaurant called Dimitri's in South, Southfield, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And so we did our homework and we found out that their enforcer, Bobby LaPuma, was from Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So they got me a driver's license. I still have it. Frank Pagano, such and such address, Conshohocken, in Pennsylvania. Okay. <laughs> so now I go out to Dimitri's and I'm sitting at the bar and every day I see them in one of the other rooms having lunch, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Bobby LaPuma and, and the Jackalone mob. Yeah. And so I'm sitting at the bar and that goes on for a few days. And one day Bobby LaPuma is sitting at the bar. Yeah. So, you know, I go like this. I tap my nose. Yeah. And so he comes over to me. He says, why are you tapping your nose? I said, with a nose like yours, we can be brothers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
you know? Yeah. And and so uh, he says, what are you doing here? I says, well, I'm starting, uh, I'm trying to start an ambulance service, you know, private ambulances. Yeah. And I, I'm looking for warehouses. He says, oh, I can take care of that for you. He says, by the way, where are you from? I says, outside Philadelphia, you wouldn't know where I'm from. Yeah. He says, where are you from? I says, I'm from Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. Conshohocken, yeah. my mother lives there. You know, <laughs> we didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's how I got into him. Wow. Wow. You know, crazy. Yeah. Wow. So it, it, it was a good run. But you, you, you must have, yeah, you, you make it sound easy, Frank, but it, you must have been extremely skilled in comfortably dealing with, with all these people. Well, I never, I never went into a, a situation that I, I, I felt uncomfortable about. Yeah. They said I had to wear a wire and I felt uncomfortable. I didn't do it. Yeah. Uh, if I felt something's wrong with this deal, I didn't. Yeah. And that's what I guess that's what kept me alive. Yeah. Yeah. They never suspected you, I guess, because you, you grew up Italian American in the culture. You just, you, you know, you just fit in. I, I, as I say, I could be a D's, Dems, and those guy if I had to be. Yeah. Or I could be sophisticated. Right. Right. You know, yeah. I, I always came off as somebody in some family and not a drug user. Right. You know, because there were occasions where they'd say, oh, oh, why don't you sample it? Hey, I don't use it. That's for assholes. I sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And this way, I never had to get uh, into that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Only once I was in Miami with an informant, and I was dealing with the Colombian. So the Colombian comes into the in, into the uh, hotel room, and he says, "Oh, I got something for you to test." And so he puts down two lines of cocaine on the bureau. So thank you. <laughs> the informant was a a, a coke fiend. He yeah. just went, <laughs> lines, you know. It was and gone I made, before you had a chance. So I made believe I did the other line. Yeah, yeah. You know? wow. So wow. Now the guy says, "Okay." Uh, I'm going to uh, go get the merchandise. I'll be back. So he comes back with the merchandise and he says, let me see the money. Yeah. So I get the attache case. And as I'm opening the attache case, I see him going for something. He says, yeah. oh my God, he's going for a gun. Yeah. Going for a calculator. To count <laughs> the money. But I'll, I'll tell you, my, my rectum quivered a little. I bet, I bet, I bet, yeah. We made that move. Yeah, yeah. And how were the Colombians different? Were they a lot different from, from the Sicilians? Oh, yeah. The Sicilians, the Sicilians were family people. Yeah. I mean, they 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 thought they were like selling full of brushes. <laughs> they they never thought of it that they were, they were, they were selling death. Yeah. Or corrupting people, yeah, 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 corrupting people and killing people, yeah, you know, uh, and so, um, uh, the Colombians were just brutal, they kill your family just to make an example, yeah, yeah. Now, matter of fact, in DEA, they had set up a task force, uh, just dealing with these Colombians that were whacking all these people, yeah, you know, yeah, but, um. As I say, uh, it was a good run. 
Yeah, and this was Carlos Escobar. This was this was his group. Oh or? no, the people that I was dealing with yeah. were the uh, Cali Cartel. Oh, Cali uh, Cartel. Rodriguez yeah. Brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were Escobar brutal. Escobar yeah. was already gone by then. Okay, okay. Uh, they had they had gotten him. Uh, no, I was dealing with the Cali Cartel, and I almost had them. Yeah. Uh, we had set up. By that time, I was working in Italy. Mm-hmm. And it was the 1990 World Cup uh-huh. being yeah. held in Italy. Yeah, I remember that. And yeah. the Cali Cartel had two of their players from their teams in Colombia playing on the national Colombian team. Mm-hmm. So we had information that the Rodriguez brothers were going to come over. Uh-huh. Dynamite information. Yeah. Their families came over. Wow. Uh, we had them set up in the hotel. They even brought over two prostitutes <laughs> to service them when they were there. Found out they had a bank account with $30,000 in it just for, you know, spending money. Yeah, yeah. But sure as hell, there was a leak. There was a leak in the Italian police, and there were, of course, a leak in the Colombians. Ah. And the day before the, the Rodriguez brothers were coming over, they were tipped off. Uh-huh. And they never showed up. Ah, uh, wow. But we did get their money, people, and we seized $3 million wow. on the deal. So, wow. It, it went real well. Yeah. And and that was, uh, I, I can't remember, I, I think it was National Geographic that did a, uh, a documentary called uh, Operation Offsides. Uh huh. About us. What was that, that about that deal? Yeah, yeah, going after the Cali cartel yeah. during the World Cup in Italy. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And you were there? Yeah, I was at Tashalem. Uh-huh. I was uh, chief uh, U.S. advisor to the Italian police agency on narcotics. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I worked with one of the most fantastic people in the world, Judge Giovanni Falcone, mm-hmm. the most devoted prosecutor I've ever seen. He was responsible for trying the 300 uh, Sicilian mafioso at one time in the Oxy trial. I remember that, yeah. And of course, his his informant was Tommaso Buscetta, mm-hmm. who, who we in DEA put him in the witness protection program. And I was the go-between between the Italian police and Tommaso, who we were hiding in the United States. In the United States, mm-hmm. whenever anybody wanted to see Tommaso, they would come to me. I would make arrangements with the agent that was hiding him. Yeah. And we'd meet in the United States. And there was like one occasion where the Italians wanted to pay Tommaso for his testimony in the trial. So they wanted to give him a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. So they gave me the money in lira i changed it into a hundred thousand dollars i flew to the united states and with the italians we met with tommaso and the agent that was handling him and and i paid him the hundred thousand hmm. dollars there were occasions when magistrates wanted to talk to him from sicily and i would make arrangements and i'd come over Judge Giovanni Falcone, one of Italy's most important prosecutors, dedicated his life to fighting the Sicilian Mafia. 
He always knew he'd die for his crusade, and ultimately he did. On March 23, 1992, Judge Falcone was assassinated by a car bomb filled with more than a half ton of explosives set by the Sicilian Mafia. Falcone's murder came not long after he presided over the most important and effective trial ever brought against the Sicilian Mafia, and one that is widely regarded as one of the biggest trials in history. Known as the Maxi Trial, it began on February 10, 1986, and ended on February 16, 1987, and it resulted in the indictments of 474 mafiosi, 360 of whom were convicted. It sounds like throughout you had really good support. You had support from the from the prosecutors, and you had support from from your uh, your home office. I had to give Rudy Giuliani credit. Yeah, he stuck telling me. I had to give the surveillance agents credit. Yeah, they were never they were never burnt on surveillance. Yeah, they took beautiful photographs. You know, you see me with the Sicilians, and. Um, so I was lucky in that regard. Mm-hmm. But as I say, uh, a lot of the times I was on my own, like going up to Canada yeah. and dealing with the Catronis. But they they felt that I was somebody out of Philly. Right. Well, again, they didn't show. Yeah. So I went to Buffalo to get in, uh, you know, to do a deal in the Magadino family. And, and we bought heroin uh, up there in Buffalo. And I felt comfortable doing that. You know, I didn't compromise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and that's it. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Frank. What an amazing experience. And, uh, you know, so heroic, you know, to go in there like that and deal with these people for so long. Well, someday I'm going to write a book. The Pizza Connection trial, which Frank testified in, ran for a staggering 17 months from September 30th, 1985 to March 2nd, 1987, and became the longest trial in American history. Over the course of the trial, one defendant, Gaetano Mazzara, was murdered, and another, Gaetano Baldamenti's nephew, Pietro Alfano, was seriously wounded. On March 2nd, 1987, two of the 22 defendants pleaded guilty to lesser currency violations. Only one defendant was acquitted. The remaining 18 were convicted of running an international drug ring and were sentenced to serve between 15 and 45 years in prison. Gaetano Baldamente, the leader of the Sicilian Mafia, got the maximum sentence. Following Frank's 28-year career in the DEA, he worked as a licensed private detective in Maryland. In 1990, he played one of the Mafia Dons in the movie Godfather 3. We thank him for joining us today and for his distinguished service to our country. The great Frank Panessa is today's Hero Behind the Headlines. Heroes Behind Headlines. Executive producer, Ralph Pizzullo. Produced and engineered by Mike Dawson. Orchestra and score provided by Extreme Music. Please comment, share, and subscribe. 
to Heroes Behind Headlines.